Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is Robert Curthouse, Part One. History is written by the winners and Robert Curthos was not the winner. History knows him as Duke of Normandy, not King of England. His father overlooked his many talents and relegated him to occasionally witnessing charters. He also never arranged a marriage, which is usually unthinkable for a king with regard to his oldest child. His brothers had better timing and paid the chroniclers, so it's not surprising that he isn't well thought of. He will be imprisoned for more than 25 years, outlive his wife and beloved son. Events in history have not been kind to him. Through my reading, though, I have really come to see that there is a more nuanced story to tell about Curthos. He was a brilliant negotiator who helped bring peace between England and Scotland using his own skills and social contacts. Curthos's time on crusade, while a general event that isn't looked on kindly today, show a man who was respected by his fellow nobles and knights, an aware strategist and a deeply religious man. His piety actually cost him greatly, at least once during his life. Because Robert is not the winner, history wasn't written for him, which often makes finding out what really happened difficult. Even the events that are traditionally taken as fact may not be as factual as they seem. Like many born in this time period, no one knows exactly when Robert Curthouse was born. He witnessed his first charter in 1051 as an infant. He was most likely born about nine months after his parents' marriage. He was declared Count of Normandy from birth. Robert's parents would go on to have two more sons, Richard and William Rufus, prior to 1066. But Kurt Hose was clearly seen as his father's heir. He was officially named such in 1063. In 1066, Robert was at the most 15, almost old enough to lead troops, but probably not experienced enough. Had the battle been on home soil, he probably would have been involved but it would require a channel crossing and fighting on foreign soil. Leaving his son and heir in Normandy was a prudent decision. If anything had gone wrong, Curthouse would have been safe to take control of Normandy quickly. Matilda, who stayed with him to act as regent and to advise her son if anything happened, and he found himself duped. Had William died at Hastings instead of Harold, history would record Curthouse's young rule as a duke instead of his rebellions and loss of freedom. He wouldn't even have needed to worry about one of his younger brothers. Henry I wasn't born until 1068. Like his sons, grandchildren, and most of all, his great-grandson, William ruled his kingdom his way. He was unwilling to share control or give his oldest son any chance to prove himself. Curthouse spent much of his teenage years in Normandy, 
It would have been a perfect chance for him to practice ruling. But William left Matilda of Flanders, who was a capable ruler in her own right, in charge. By not allowing the young man who would have seen ruling as his birthright any power, William would have been setting his son up to feel useless. The usual histories give 1077 as the year that Curthose rebelled, dated by John of Worcester. But at least one of the versions of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle puts it at 1079, making it a much shorter rebellion and more of an argument than all-out war. Regardless of when it started, the why is pretty well known. Curthose's surviving younger brothers, William Rufus and Henry, threw foul-smelling liquid on him in public and were not corrected in their behavior by their father. Curthose was enraged by his brother's treatment of him and probably hurt by his father's lack of deference. The rebellion itself came to nothing, but there are two interesting things that occurred during it. He was financially supported by his mother and her brother, Count Robert of Flanders, and this was a rare point of contention between his parents. While his mother would only see this as sending money to her son to support his health and survival, his father saw it as a small betrayal on the part of his wife. He did, of course, forgive her. During his rebellion, Curthos also did something that no other person had done. He unhorsed his father. In fact, he was going to attack him until he heard his voice. In what must have furthered William's embarrassment, Curthos ordered his father onto his own horse and off the field of battle. William was not used to taking orders from anyone. Matilda's influence did eventually bring a reconciliation between father and son. By 1080, Curthos was back at court. During Easter court that year, he and his parents received letters from Pope Gregory VII. Matilda's told her she was doing well supporting the church and her people. William was told he needed to be more pious, and Curthoses praised him for his return to his father and encouraged him to remain filial. During this year, Curthose witnessed at least two charters. At the end of 1080, Curthose helped his father with his biggest ongoing problem, Scotland. Years earlier, after the events of 1066, Curthose had become friends with a young Anglo-Saxon man of the same age, Edgar Etheling. Edgar had been declared king by the Wheaton after the death of Harold Godwinson at Hastings. William had allowed the young man to live when he stepped aside, granted him land, and allowed him to remain in England. Edgar is a subject for another episode, literally. But his and Curthose's friendship becomes very important here. Edgar was the brother-in-law of Malcolm III, the King of Scotland. By having the two young men handle negotiations, William and Malcolm were able to come to an agreement. A border was decided, and Malcolm would pay homage to William and his son for his lands in England. During this meeting, Curthose also became godfather to Malcolm's newest child, a daughter named Edith. On his return to London, Curthose founded a castle, creatively named Newcastle, on the Tyne. Normans, great with nicknames, boring with other names. Curthose is recorded being with his father over the next six years. They were together in 1083 when Matilda of Flanders passed in early November. There are some histories that state that father and son had a falling out at the time of her death, but there is evidence that Curthose witnessed charters well into 1086. Even though they were together, things were not going well between father and son. Without Matilda, their personalities probably clashed more than usual. Curthose was probably hoping to be named Duke of Normandy, since he was ready and could help govern that area, allowing his father to focus on England. French and Norman traditions usually award oldest sons the lands held by the father at the time of his ascension, and the next son lands obtained throughout his reign. This would have been normal, but rarely did a man obtain an entire kingdom during his lifetime. 
According to tradition, Kurt Host would have been given Normandy, Rufus would have received England, and Henry would have received money. As anyone would imagine, this is not something that pleased Kurt Host. He was the oldest son. Why would his father have bothered gaining a kingdom to give it to a younger son? The piece of evidence that William was planning on giving Rufus England is, shall we say, dubious? I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but this will make sense in a moment. In 1087, history gets a little confusing. What is known is that Robert Curthos was upset at his father and allied with the French king, Philip I. Now, allying with Philip isn't as untoward as it would sound at first. Normandy was a vassal of France and owed homage to France. Curthos, as the heir to Normandy, did need to maintain a good relationship with the French throne. Getting along well with the French king would help him when it came time to succeed to Normandy. However, his father did not see it this way. His son was rebelling again. In William's defense, there are indications that Curthos was communicating and receiving support from his uncle, Robert of Flanders, who had assisted him with his first rebellion. Regardless of the facts, William attacked the French vexin on the border with Normandy in July that year. During this attack, something struck him down. Either his abdomen was injured by his pommel or he came down with an illness. William was taken back to Rouen, where he would die on the 9th of September, 1087. There are two accounts of William's death. One from Odoric Vitalis has long been acknowledged as based on stories he was told. He was not present at William's death. At that time, he was 12 years old and in England. The second account, however, will require a bit of a detour to address, and essential to the attempts to rehabilitate the image of Curthos. Here enters the famous text, De Obit Will El Me, or The Death of William. I will call it the obit for ease. This text purports to be from the deathbed of William of Normandy. To describe this document as an indictment of Curthos would be an understatement. In it, William has to be persuaded not to completely disinherit his oldest son. He agrees to give him Normandy since he had already promised it to Curthos, but he refuses to give him England. The text also doesn't mention William's youngest son, Henry Beauclerc, the future Henry I, at all. Until 1956, it was thought to be a contemporaneous document written based on events within the years after William's death by someone who was there. In that year, though, two completely independent researchers noticed that passages had been taken from an earlier text, The Life of Charlemagne. Further research would show other parts are from a second text, A Life of Louis the Pious. Yes, it appears that 11th century writers were forgetting to cite their sources. An important question to ask at this point is who benefits the most from this text being taken as factual? If this was written based on William's deathbed statements, then why is much of it taken from two other texts? While William was more educated than most, his education was more martial and less academic. He could not read. It's highly unlikely he was quoting earlier works on his deathbed. Remember, his youngest son's nickname was a derision about his level of learning, since being able to read was something to tease a man about. The obit is attached to a much larger work. The supposed author of the obit is Simeon of Durham. The larger work that it's attached to, and I do apologize for this butchering, Gesta Normanorum Ducum, or The Deeds of the Norman Dukes. I will call the full work The Deeds for simplicity and pronunciation's sake. This larger work was originally written by William of Jumiage as a commission from William of Normandy. It was expanded on by Audric Vitalis and Robert of Turigny. But their parts aren't what we'll be discussing. It's important to know that Simeon was not at William's deathbed. He was most likely in England at the time. 
So who was there that could have told him what happened? We know that none of his sons were there. Curtis was in France. No one had sent him news that his father was even dying. Rufus was either at a port on the French side of the channel or on a ship, leaving for England. He hadn't even waited for his father to die before going to claim what he wanted. Could one of Rufus's men have forged the obit to favor his master? And what made Rufus think he would get England? There are indications that William wanted England to go to Curthouse. Yes, shocking. I know, but hear me out. Only Curthouse had been given any title other than knight at any point in his father's lifetime. William's two younger sons were usually referenced as the king's sons, while Curthouse was referred to as Count Robert in most court documents, both before and after his rebellion. When Curthouse negotiated a treaty with Scotland, the Scottish king paid homage to William as king and his oldest son, but not his other two sons. This comes up later when Rufus is negotiating again with Scotland. Curthouse has to tell the Scottish king to accept Rufus as king. If another sovereign, if you've communicated with often, is surprised by your decision to pick one son over the other, it's probably telling. Finally, and probably the biggest argument in favor of Curthouse being William's intended heir, the response of Lanfranc to Rufus's claim of the throne. Quick side note, Lanfranc was, at the time, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He is a man in need of his own special episode, not the least because he's one of the few men who was ever willing to call William of Normandy out when his once an ecclesiastical law didn't mesh. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. He was actually sentenced to exile in the 1050s due to his objection to William's marriage to Matilda. They patched things up before the sentence was carried out. 
He had been a member of William's inner circle since deciding to ask Pope Leo IX for dispensation for the earlier mentioned marriage. He was a brilliant and respected biblical scholar and teacher, and it helped William greatly in 1066 that one of Lanfranc's friends and former students was Pope Alexander II. Lanfranc was also politically aware and active. William used him for his contacts and because he was a trusted friend. Basically, he is someone who would have known William's mind and probably had the best idea of his plans. Mainly because the other person William trusted to this level, his brother Odo, was sitting in a Norman jail. Prior to coming to Lanfranc to request a coronation, Rufus went to Winchester. The Normans were very good at securing the royal treasury. It helps to have funds to back up the military strength one needs to use to be declared king during this time. The early Anglo-Normans struggled with their line of succession multiple times. Odric Vitalis states that Rufus carried a letter dictated by William giving England to him. There are no other records of this letter, nor do any accounts of Rufus's meeting with Landfranc make reference to a letter. However, there is a chance that this letter was actually the obit, a shrew piece of political propaganda that supports Rufus as the rightful king and not his older brother. Well, we will never know if there was a letter given to Lanfranc. We do know what Lanfranc thought of Rufus becoming king. First, Lanfranc was understandably shocked to hear his king was dead. He didn't even know he was unwell. During this time, Lanfranc would have been acting as something akin to William's regent. He was equally surprised to hear that William wanted to divide his kingdom. This gives further indication that Curthos was expected to be heir. He may not have been a perfect son, but he was much more like his father than Rufus though Henry would end up being the most like their father of the three. He'll get his time. Edmure of Canterbury, a monk in the service of Canterbury Cathedral and the secretary to the archbishop, recorded the reaction of Lanfranc to this news. I'm just going to read the full quote. Both William of Normandy and William Rufus are referenced as William in the passage, but I think it's clear enough who's being spoken of not to change anything. Curthouse is referred to as Robert, of course. But how distressed Lanfranc was at his death. Who could describe when so great was the shock that we who were with him, when the news of the king's death came, were afraid that he would die on the spot from anguish of heart. So King William died and was succeeded on the throne by William, his son. He win his intent on seizing the prize of the kingdom before his brother Robert found Lanfranc, without whose support he could not possibly obtain the throne, not altogether favorable to the fulfillment of his desire. Accordingly, fearing that any delay in his consecration might result in the loss of the dignity which he coveted, he began both personally and indirectly by all whom he could get to support him, to make promises to Lanfranc with plighted words and oath to the effect that if he were king, he would in all his dealings throughout the whole kingdom maintain justice, mercy, and equity, that he would defend the peace, liberty, and security of the churches against all adversaries, and that through all and in all, he would follow Lanfranc's bidding and counsel. But when he was once firmly established on the throne, he turned his back on his promise. Did Lanfranc have any other reasons to crown Rufus? Other than his amazing level of distress, there was a risk to Canterbury if he didn't crown Rufus. The last two kings had been crowned by the Archbishop of York. This was a challenge to the primacy of Canterbury as the leading church in England. There is the possibility that Lanfranc was worried or knew that Rufus would go to York if he wasn't crowned in Canterbury. In the two weeks between Rufus's request and his coronation, there was no word from Curthouse. There are plenty of suggestions that the news was being kept from Curthouse by Rufus, 
and history does show it took a long time for the news to reach Kurthos. It's difficult to imagine the pressure Land Frank was under. One of his closest friends, his king during a time when the church literally needed the protection of the crown, was dead. The power of his seat was under threat, and the only man there who could possibly take up the job was not the person the church wanted. Church historians are not kind to Rufus, usually in a way that's more entertaining to modern readers than the nastiness used towards Kurthos. But he was definitely not the church's first choice. He was what was there. Lanfranc decided to crown Rufus. Kurthos was unimpressed by this turn of events. Overthrowing an anointed king, especially one's brother, is not an easy task. At first, Kurthos played nice. He supported his brother in negotiations with Scotland, even convincing Malcolm III to swear fealty to Rufus. Both brothers swore that the other would be their heir, neither even worried about Henry, it seems. As part of taking over his dukedom, Kurthos followed the tradition of fulfilling his father's final donations and releasing his political prisoners. These people had been verbally released by William, but his sons had to do the literal unlocking of the jail cell. Rufus would have done the same in England, though he chose not to release all his father's political prisoners. The most important of these prisoners was Odo, the Bishop of Bayo, Curtus's uncle. William had imprisoned him for fraud. While Odo was a wealthy man due to his brother's generosity, he was also seeming in want of more. Odo was one of the great supporters of Curthos, preferring him to Rufus as king. The other two prisoners worth mentioning are Ulf, one of the surviving sons of Harold Godwinson. He disappears from history not long after this. One can imagine living a quiet life appealed. The other was Duncan, Malcolm of Scotland's oldest son. He was knighted by Curthos and sent back to Scotland. Duncan would become king in 1094, for a very short time before being overthrown by his uncle. After one year of Rufus's rule, some of the nobles were ready for a change. Curthos was not the instigator of this rebellion. The barons weren't just looking for a change. They had good reason to only want one leader in England and Normandy. There was the potential that they would be put in the position of being beholden to two masters who could want very different things. The leading nobles, led by tellingly Otto of Bayo and his brother Robert, Count of Mortain, began a minor but growing rebellion against Rufus. I find it very interesting that the leaders of this rebellion were the uncles of both the king and the duke. They had their choice of nephews, and they picked Curtis. Of course, histories written during the time of Henry I will say it's because they thought they could more easily control Curtis. But I think his next act will show us he wasn't an easily led man. Curtis had some disadvantages in this rebellion. First, he would be invading. I would argue that there has only been one successful invasion of England since 1066, and it hardly counts since most of those fighting for the invading king were English, and already in England. Second, unlike his father, he would be battling his own brother. The Normans may have been fine with imprisoning their brothers, but actually killing them to take their throne was a bit bigger of a step. In the end, the rebellion failed. Curthus was not willing to go to England to lead his troops or nobles, and bad weather prevented his ships from landing. In all likelihood, he wasn't ready to take on his brother. Plus, it was well known at this point that Rufus was unlikely to take a wife or father any legitimate children, or any at all for that matter. Rufus's only recorded interest in marriage was a supposed visit to Wilton Abbey to meet Edith, Malcolm of Scotland's daughter, and Curthus's goddaughter. He was rebuffed, and there are no other mentions of him looking for a wife. Curthus had Normandy and could wait until the time was right to try to take England. Another thing to remember in all of this is money. England, and therefore Rufus, had so much of it, and Normandy didn't have anywhere near as much. At the time of Rufus's ascension, the treasury had the equivalent of 20 years' worth of taxes. Curthus had nothing in comparison. Normandy was comfortable, but not wealthy. 
Remember, William of Normandy hadn't just gone there because it was his right. He went there for money. Curthose would have been acutely aware of this, and it will come into play soon. Curthose's next act is the one I think shows us the measure of his character. Away from his brother's chroniclers, the picture that emerges is that of a thoughtful, loyal man, ready to do his religious duty, and a good general who was respected by those traveling with him. I am, of course, speaking of the First Crusades. These days, we don't speak about waging holy war as something to be celebrated. But in the 11th century, it was the thing to do. In November 1095, Pope Urban II began calling for a crusade to, well, help wealthy aristocratic men do something to save their souls. Pilgrimage to the Holy Land had been an ongoing thing for a millennia at this point, but most pilgrims traveled unarmed in loosely connected groups. The crusades were planned as a completely different trip. Killing of non-believers was blessed. Loot would be available in captured cities. Younger sons would have a chance to make their own name. Plenty of these men would eventually stay, becoming the counts and princes of Jerusalem. There was the added benefit of assisting the Byzantine emperor with his ongoing Seljuk Turk problems in Anatolia. Finances around the Crusades is almost as complicated as the politics around them. The years leading up to the First Crusade had not been kind to Normandy. Poor Harvest had reduced tax income while making feeding his people more difficult. Curthouse did not have ready access to funds to support his cause. He did have a duchy, though, which he was able to place in a vif gauge, a form of mortgage where the holder of the debt maintains control of the collateral while waiting to be paid off. The funds produced while the collateral was held would be used to pay down the debt. Curthouse would give Rufus the power of Normandy while he was gone, repaying him on his return. Many writers have made it seem that Curthouse was bad with money, and this is why he needed to get funds from his brother. But it looks like he actually wanted to make sure not to overtax his subjects. And as a crusader, his lands would be protected, at least theoretically, while he was gone. Rufus also had to tax England heavily to pay for his temporary control over Normandy. The protection of crusader lands and rights was meant to be promised by those either holding the lands for them or through their liege lord's order. And next week, I will share Kurt Hose's life through the First Crusades, his return to Normandy, and into his final years. I'll include my analysis at this point. Before I sign off, though, I do want to discuss something that will be important next week, but doesn't have a good place in this episode, or even the next one. King Rufus's relationship with the church. As many listeners will know already, Rufus was not well-liked by the church. He would often avoid allowing appointments to ecclesiastical offices so that the state would receive the officeholder's income while the see set vacant. This was frowned upon, not just due to the financial aspect, but the spiritual aspect. If people can't have religious guidance because their local abbot or bishop is sitting vacant, there was an actual fear for their immortal soul. Many today are not religious, and even those that are rarely profess their faith at this level. But this was a very serious charge at the time. Rufus's other church failing was his regular arguments with Lanfranc and ignoring the archbishop's advice. Upon Lanfranc's death, Rufus left the archbishopric vacant for four years before Anselm was appointed. His relationship with Anselm wasn't any better, and the archbishop was exiled in 1097. This also allowed Rufus to take the funds from the church, as though it were vacant. While Rufus isn't the only king to argue with the church, he didn't seem to rely on his own chroniclers, unlike Henry, so church chroniclers do not look kindly on him. I will cover more about these arguments between church and state in a year or two's time when I do the Year of the Antipopes. Included in that series will be episodes about the politics surrounding these men. I hope you have enjoyed this first full episode. 
Please share any feedback you have. I really look forward to hearing from my listeners. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.